0: Sometimes, they win. Even the devil was an angel once. The world has its own rules, and these rules are not human. Some of us seek answers to the origin and existence of cryptids and the unexplained. Join us as we venture beyond the known and accepted boundaries. Welcome to our nightmare. I think you're going to. Hey folks, good evening and welcome to Phantoms and Monsters Personal Reports, where I narrate and discuss some of the cryptid and unexplained sightings and encounters submitted to Phantoms and Monsters and the Phantoms and Monsters 14 research team. So thanks for joining me. Uh, This channel is made possible by you clicking the uh, subscribe and like buttons and uh, also sharing our programming and uh, super chat, super thanks, donations are always appreciated you can click the uh, dollar icon located below the chat box and the buy me a coffee link and banner are also shown so um thanks for your consideration and um now if you're in the chat as always if you have a question uh please use caps and uh, i'll get try to get to each one, each one of them uh after the presentation i'll let you know when i'm on the last account so you can start posting your questions So I just wanted to mention this week, we actually celebrate Phantoms of Monsters blogs, 18th anniversary. And that's 44 million page views later. And uh, so during tonight's show, I'll be giving away books to some of the folks in the live chat. Uh, So if uh, you're not in the live chat, get in there right now. And, uh, uh, our moderator moderators will pick who will receive the books. Now, uh, before I begin tonight, I, I do want to say that for the most part, these these reports are not the happy and feel good experience of reports. <laughs> uh, a, a lot of, and, and quite frankly, I've been involved with all these accounts. You know uh, it's human nature be fearful of the unknown and uh that being stated many people are aware that there is more to our existence than what we just see on earth and uh, we we seek answers to questions about higher intelligence beyond the bounds of this planet so during these inquiries we ask if the powers that be have secret knowledge of non-terrestrial races and technology eventually we wonder if uh, official disclosure of the truth will ever be communicated to the populace. You know, I truly doubt that'll ever, you know, ever be uh, uh, ever happen unless there's an overwhelming incident that leaves the government no other choice. So, um, but then I expect we'd kind of be spoon-fed the information just to calm the masses. Now, abduction and alien contact experience or reports can trigger some skepticism in an investigator, especially if if the information is received by a telephone or in person. The the demeanor of the individual is usually full of fear, confusion and uncontrolled emotion. It's important to listen and avoid making uh, instant judgments based on the first interaction. But sometimes you get that call in which you know that something remarkable actually occurred in this person's life and that you are now going to become part of their story. So in this episode, I will describe the reports and incidents in detail and answer all questions uh, from the chat room. Now I will say each of these cases I'm going to talk about, I've been involved with and uh, I've done the best of my ability to try to, um, give the answers to the um, to the experiencers and try to calm their fears. Uh, But sometimes I'm not even given that chance. And we'll find out about that as we go on. Uh, This first account is probably one some of you have heard before. It was in my book. I get a lot of comments about it. And uh, I get a lot of requests to to actually talk about it. On the show. So uh, I'm going to do it tonight. So in July 2009, I received a call and uh, it was a young woman named Mandy. Uh, she stated her life had become a living hell and that uh, she could no longer live in the house, you know, uh, leave the house in the evening. She told me, I'm literally afraid of the dark and under siege in my own home at night. Now, Mandy was living in a farmhouse outside a small town in East Central Washington State, less than a mile from the Idaho border. About two weeks prior to contacting me, she and her mother had noticed bright red and white lights hovering above the Coeur Mountains. As they watched the lights, Mandy began to feel dizzy and fearful. That night, she had a horrific nightmare that involved constant flashing lights and loud mechanical noises. The next morning she woke feeling nauseous and lightheaded. Mandy was a school teacher, but had to call in sick that day. So by the next day, Mandy began to feel better, but the lights over the mountains continued on for several nights. She no longer had any dreams, but she still had the sense of fear lingering with her. Her mother thought that Mandy was simply overreacting to the sighting of the lights. But then a few nights later, Mandy and her mother were in the kitchen cleaning up at their late dinner. They began to hear popping sounds coming from the backyard. And as they looked out the window, they both noticed hundreds of small red and white lights flying in all directions. Each time a pair of lights collided, there was a distinct popping. Mandy ran into the living room and looked out the window. There were red and white lights everywhere, out by the road and in the field across the road. Her mother picked up the telephone in order to call the police, but there was no dial tone. There were also strange sounds coming from the roof, similar to scratching. And this continued for about five minutes and suddenly stopped. They were both confused and scared. The phone was now working, but her mother thought there was no reason to call the police at that point. So Mandy walked outside to see if there was uh, any indication of what had just occurred. Everything seemed fine, but but there was a slight odor in the air. She told me that it reminded her of burnt motor oil, but she couldn't find a source. She eventually went back into the house, but was still bewildered what had happened. Um, The next night at approximately 10.30 p.m., Mandy was getting ready for bed. And while standing in front of her bathroom mirror she noticed two loud thuds on the roof. She went into her mother's room to see if she had heard the sounds, but she was already in bed asleep. Now, while walking in the upstairs hallway towards her room, she heard several more thuds on the roof, as well as scampering sounds in the attic. She looked out her bedroom window and once again witnessed hundreds of red and white lights flying about in all directions. The noises in the attic had awoken her mother. They both yelled for each other and all the electricity in the house cut off. They ran into Mandy's room and sat nervously on the bed. The thuds on the roof and the scampering in the attic continued. They lit a few candles, hoping the activity would soon end. They felt like prisoners in their own home, worried about what would happen next. Then suddenly, the lights came back on, the noises stopped. Mandy later told me that the commotion went on for at least an hour. Neither of them got much sleep at night. A few days later, Mandy contacted me by telephone. I was referred to her by a paranormal investigator in Spokane. As soon as I began talking to Mandy and her mother, I sensed that this was not a run-of-the-mill unexplained encounter. They had once again experienced similar activity the previous night. Mandy commented that she felt like they were both in danger and asked if I had ever heard of similar experience. I was understandably dumbfounded by the series of events, but on the same at the same time, I was convinced that the activity may eventually lead to a physical intervention. But I didn't I didn't mention my unease. I believe that we talked for about three hours. There was nothing exceptional about Mandy and her mother. They had lived together in their family home since, Man- uh, since Mandy was born. There was no information offered about Mandy's father, so I didn't press the issue. Our mother had recently retired from her position as a state worker. I asked them to keep a journal in the activity and to contact me. And this is my normal routine when working on cases. Uh, during the interview, Mandy asked, why is this happening to us? I didn't want to tell her that they may have been singled out, but I really did sense that this may have been the case. Little did I know it would be my last contact with Mandy. After I got off the telephone with Mandy and her mother, I started to examine several incident databases to find any similar events. Continued activity to the same witnesses over a period is somewhat unusual, and I was concerned that there may eventually be an escalation. So the next day, I expected to receive a follow-up telephone call from Mandy. In fact, I called and left a message asking her to let me know if there had been any further activity. I waited for three days, and no telephone call or email came my way. Then on Sunday afternoon, the anticipated call came. It was Mandy's mother. She apologized for not getting back to me, but there was an obvious distress in her voice. And after a brief pause, she calmly said, Mandy is missing. I got a sudden sick feeling in my stomach. Mandy had gone to bed not long after we had talked on the telephone. Her mother remained downstairs in the living room watching television. At about 11 p.m. she decided to go to her bedroom. And as she passed Mandy's bedroom, She noticed light coming from the bottom of the door. She knocked on the door in order to check on her, but there was no response. And as she opened the door, the room went completely dark. She flicked on the light switch by the door and observed that Mandy was not in bed. She called out to her, but there was no response. Panic was beginning to set in and she literally screamed Mandy. While running throughout the house, There was no trace of her inside or out. Mandy was gone. The local authorities had no explanation. All of Mandy's personal items, including her car, remained. It was as if she simply vanished. Now, since Mandy was an adult, there wasn't much that the police investigators could do. They suspected that she had taken off with someone during the night. I asked her mother to keep me updated, but I, I never really expect to hear back from her. As far as I know, Mandy has never returned home. The last time I made an inquiry with the uh, Washington State Police, her case remains unsolved. So that's been what, 12, 13 years now. Mandy's disappearance still haunts me and I'm certain that she was abducted by an unknown force, but. That doesn't absolve me from feeling a bit of guilt. I, uh, I realized that my regret seems somewhat ridiculous since there was nothing I could have done, but nonetheless, I suspect the stigma of her ordeal will always remain with me. And I'll be honest with everyone. That's probably the one case that has affected me more than any. Um, and I still do occasionally check in with the authorities and, no and hair of her. Uh, her since uh, since that time, her mother has passed away. I did find that out. So um, I don't know who lives in the house now. If they've had any problems or anything, but man, uh, according to the authorities, Mandy has not has not appeared anywhere. <clears throat> so on Saturday, November third, two thousand seven, at approximately eight thirty p.m., my life ended. Now, that's what the witness told me. Not literally, but everything I had gained and achieved to that point was taken away from me. Since that day, I can only recall bits and pieces of my past, but barely enough to independently get by. Fortunately for me, my mom and dad have persevered with me through and without them. I'm not sure if I'd be able to survive on my own. I will attempt to describe what happened to me even though much of my personal history before that day had been provided by my parents and other acquaintances. The remaining information comes by way of my therapist who has extracted and recorded from deep recesses of my mind by means of several regressive hypnotherapy sessions. So here we go. And during the evening of that fateful day, I had spent most of the afternoon attending campus events at Georgia Tech, where I was in my fourth year. I was accompanied by a few friends who, like me, were biomedical engineering majors. I was looking forward to continuing my graduate studies at Duke University the following year. Now, around 8 o'clock p.m., we had just finished eating dinner at a local restaurant, decided to go to a friend's dorm and watch TV. This is where things get fuzzy. I was told by friends and others that we were walking on McMillan Street about a block from the the friend's resident hall when I told the group that I needed to see someone and that I would catch up with them later. The first thing I remember after that point in time is that I was laid laid back into a large recliner-like chair, but I had no idea where I was. My eyes were open but I couldn't see anything other than blurry, bright, white light. I also felt paralyzed and couldn't speak. There was no sound other than a low droning that seemed to vibrate all around me. I had no idea how long I was there, but I would wait for a few minutes and doze off again. For some reason, I sensed that it had been in a recliner for a very long time. At some period... I woke to a series of chirping sounds, as well as a sense of something moving around me. I also noticed that I had no sense of smell, though I could still breathe in my nose. Again, I would have continued to doze off and on. My perception of time was non-existent. When I would wake, I felt like I I just wanted to die because I feared that I would be in this state for the remainder of my life. Anxiety and frustration overwhelmed me, but I couldn't move or yell for help. This is was all I could consciously remember about the incident. I was found 45 hours later wandering aimlessly in one of the terminals at Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport, which is on the other side of the city. I had been reported missing by my friends, and my parents had already driven from their home in Raleigh, North Carolina. The police took me to a nearby hospital where I was kept for several days. I don't remember my hospital stay. My parents drove me home to Raleigh after I was released from the hospital. And this is where I have remained since. During the past four years, I have attempted to regain what I had forgotten, but I am not progressing very well. I remembered my parents, my sisters, and other relatives and a few flashbacks from college, but little else can be recalled. I have undergone many neurological tests and have been prescribed a few medications, but I'm still unable to remember my past. In fact, I have experienced a few bouts of deep depression, and I'm afraid to venture far from home unless someone is with me. I have a tremendous hypnotherapist who has used regression therapy to help me express my feelings during my abduction. Yes, that is what my hypnotherapist believes happened to me. I will attempt to describe what my regression sessions produce. At some period during the abduction, I must have been able to see my captors because I provided a detailed description while under hypnosis. These things were about five foot tall and had bodies similar to humans. They wore yellow and crimson overhauls, Overalls made of very thin material. The heads were shaped like humans, but each had pointed chin, small noses, and ears, as well as a narrow mouth with dark, thin lips. The eyes were larger than human eyes and circular with dark pupils, but you could tell that they focused on you because the pupils would would narrow and the eyes would expand in size. I never heard them speak, but they would emit an odd chirping. They had bald heads and no noticeable hair. The skin was translucent with a yellow-green tint. The hands had five fingers or nails, but the phones were short compared to humans. I don't remember any procedures being performed on me, but I do recall writing answers to questions on a device, though I don't know how I was given the questions, if that makes any sense. Some of the questions were uh, psychic questions, and others were related to human psychology. Beyond that, I I couldn't recall anything more. I truly believe we're being observed by another species. I don't know if they are alien or if they have been on this planet longer than us, but I think that we should be concerned. I have tried to avoid feeling sorry for myself, but I cannot stop thinking that I will most likely suffer permanent effects as a result of my abduction. Regardless, I I can say that I still possess some hope that I'll one day snap out of this ordeal and move on with my life. I had been promised exclusive access if this experience is able to recall further information from this ordeal. Now, I had also asked if they'd keep me in contact with me, and to this day, there hasn't really been any significant progress. And quite honestly, I haven't talked to this experiencer in many years, so I, I just don't know what became of her. So um, that's a little disconcerting, but many times that happens. Now, this next <coughs> this next case is pretty odd, um, and um, I, I know I know the wife of this gentleman did a lot of soul searching as a result of this. So uh, she writes me, in 2005, my husband Bill and I purchased a house near Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Bill was stationed at the base and we figured that he would most likely stay since he was a wounded veteran from Operation Iraqi Freedom and had accepted a permanent position at headquarters. The house was built in the 1890s and had a Victorian style to it though there had been several renovations in addition we had three children all girls who were aged 9 11 and 15 at the time we bought the house there was a lot of space for everybody including a large yard with woodland surrounding the property when bill returned from the physical rehabilitation he didn't elaborate on how he sustained his injuries nor did he talk about his time in iraq we had been married for 12 years before his deployment, and I was content with my life as an Army spouse. When he returned, things had not really changed until we had settled into the new house. Now, one morning I woke and noticed that Bill was not in bed. It was around 6.30 a.m., and he usually slept till, until 7.15, and he would get up, eat breakfast, and head to headquarters. I woke the girls from school and made my way downstairs to the kitchen to start making breakfast. And when I walked into the kitchen, I noticed Bill was seated at the table, arms down his side and staring straight ahead. It shocked me because I had never seen him like this. I sat across the table and looked directly at him. After a minute or so, he looked into my eyes and said, I need to tell you something. He decided to stay home that day while I proceeded to uh, feed my girls and get them off to school. Bill continued to sit at the table the entire time, not saying a word. I could tell that the girls were a bit confused since he he did not speak to them. When I returned home from dropping the girls off at school, Bill was sitting in the living room drinking a cup of coffee and reading the newspaper. I sat down on the sofa fearing that I was about to hear bad news. He looked at me and said, I think I'm going to be leaving soon. I was in shock. What exactly are you telling me? He looked away for a second, then looked back towards me. It has something to do with what happened in Mosul. His division was deployed in northern Iraq near the city of Mosul. His hands and lips started to quiver. Something happened that I can't explain. I couldn't report it to the command because of the ramifications. He stood up and walked over to the sofa and sat down beside me. The wounds I sustained were not from enemy, enemy ordnance. I was abducted by a group of people or something. He explained that his platoon was on night patrol east of the city when a firefight began. Several of the soldiers went down requiring a, a retreat in order to get the wounded out of harm's way. At one point, Bill was alone covering several soldiers who helped others back to the city. Things had quieted down, and Bill was about to head back towards the base when suddenly he was knocked off his feet by a tremendously loud thud. The next thing he remembered, he was lying face up on a table in a spacious room with bright yellow lights all around. There were four beings that looked human but were dressed in thick, dark, wool-like robes. Each had a small circular cap on their head that reflected the yellow light. One of the beings told Bill that he was to become one of them and that he had no choice in the matter. Other than that, after that, he had no further memory of the beings. When he became conscious, he was in a medical helicopter on his way to Baghdad. He was told he was being transported for medical treatment at another location. He was then given what he thought was a sedative. He woke sometime later in a dark room, unable to move. After a time, a nurse came into the room and told him that he was in Germany and being treated for his wounds. She injected something into an IV and left, and again the room went dark. Bill thought from that time forward he was kept in a semi-conscious state for a long period of time, possibly for weeks. About a month after sustaining his injuries, he was admitted to the hospital for rehab. This was the first time he was able to see the extent of his injuries, as well as an explanation of what he was facing. Both of Bill's legs had deep lung scars in the front and back. He was told that he lost a considerable amount of nerve and muscle tissue, but he'd be able to recover much of his strength and sensation through rehabilitation. He inquired about the, the surgery record, but was told no surgery was performed. He then asked how the wounds were closed. The, physician, the physicians said that there was no description of sutures or skin graphing in the record. The physician agreed with Bill that this seemed very irregular. For over a year, Bill tried to get answers, but was stonewalled by military and medical officials. When he returned home, I was surprised Bill was able to move her around as well as he did, even though the scars on his legs indicated significant trauma. <clears throat> so as Bill sat beside me, his voice started to shake. They will come back for me. I have no way of avoiding it. I was still awestruck by everything I was had heard. I said, is there any way the medical staff at the Fort can help you? He looked away and said, it's beyond that point. We continued to live a fairly normal life, despite what Bill had told me. He never mentioned the incident again. I tried to forget. So as time went by, I assumed Bill had suffered some form of battlefield stress disorder, though he maintained a busy and productive schedule at home and at work. So one evening, one warm evening in July 2007, Bill left us. He had been working in the yard when suddenly my youngest girl left out a horrific scream. I ran out the back door into the yard and witnessed Bill's lifeless body lying near the poplar tree. He had taken a pocket knife and drawn it across his throat. It was so abrupt and unexpected. Bill had stated that he did not want a military funeral and wanted to be cremated. After a coroner's inquiry was determined that bill had taken his own life now last year i was cleaning out bill's clothes and personal effects when i discovered an envelope and a foot blocker that he kept in the garage i pulled out and read the single sheet of paper it read they told me it was time to leave i'm sorry though i'm sure you'll understand no i don't understand and it's simply beyond the pale So I told you folks, you were not going to be happy stories, but uh, <laughs> you got to take it what it's worth. You know, I, I, you know, when I get a lot of these, many times I'm shocked by them. And when I get back in contact, when I get in contact with the witnesses, you know, many times I wonder, how am I going to approach this when I talk to them? Uh, now, this lady uh, who, whose name started with a K um she, she it had been several years until she wrote me but uh I she was resigned to the fact that it happened and you know and she was getting on with her life and the girls seemed to be getting on with their life but still you know that's something you just you know you just don't really expect to hear you have to excuse me folks I having some sign issues tonight. <clears throat> So this next account, dear Mr. Strickler, three years ago, my uncle, my father's brother passed away. He lived in Lansing, Michigan at the time. I was born and lived in Lansing until I moved to West Lafayette, Indiana for college. After I graduated, I moved to Arizona where I currently reside. A few weeks after my uncle passed away, I received a package from the executor of my uncle's estate The contents included several personal items that had belonged to my father and a large envelope with several photographs from the 1960s. Most of the photos were of my father and my uncle at various hunting camps. The envelope also contained a letter written by my uncle to me. There was no date, but I could tell he had written it. Here is the exact content of the letter. Please forgive me for not telling you this in person. I never knew how to explain what happened. In 1966, not long after you were born, your dad, a god, and I were in North Bay, Ontario moose hunting. We had been out in the forest for almost six hours and were making our way to the cabin. It was dusk and it started to become dark quickly. Now, as we got nearer to the cabin, we could hear strange whirling sounds coming from the direction we were heading. It was now dark and we could see a bright green light shining above the cabin. We stopped walking and watched the light as it slowly circled about 50 feet above the cabin. The light was oblong in shape. I could not judge the size since there was aura around it. The swirling sound continued also. The next thing we remember was waking up in our cabin bunks the next morning. All of us had a sharp pain around our ears and eyes. We couldn't explain what had happened to us. We packed our gear and headed for home as soon as we could. By the time we reached Lansing, your dad was terribly ill. Your mom rushed him to the hospital that same night. The doctor said he had the flu, but I knew better. I didn't suffer any effects. The guide was okay also. Your dad was in the hospital for four days and started to feel better, but he was really never the same. I believe the instant the cabin affected him. He would say that he continually had sharp stabbing pains all over his body. It became so bad that he couldn't work. Well, you know the rest of the story felt that you deserved an explanation of what had actually happened. I don't know if you should tell your mom, but that's your decision. For as long as I can remember, my father was in and out of treatment. When I received the letter, my mother had already passed away. I don't know if she'd ever knew what happened to my father. Now, my mother was a sole breadwinner for our family. We did receive some money from the state for my father's disability, but I know it wasn't much. And those payments stopped soon after my father took his own life in 1975. I wish I knew more about what had happened that evening at the cabin." And quite frankly, I get a lot of stories like that, you know, where, where the experiencers, instead of telling the family what had happened, they'll write a letter, then they'll find it when they pass away. I get a lot of that. Um. And in this case, I don't know what happened. I don't know if he contracted something or was abducted and, and, you know, something was done to him. I don't know. So in um, January 2010, I received an email from a a new mother. Now, this is a long this is a long account, but I I think it's very important um, because it comes in. It's in multiple sections. The following narration is from my initial report and the follow-up information that I received. I received a rather mysterious email from a woman, I'll refer to her as Lisa, who had a traumatic experience recently. Lisa didn't place much content in the email and attached the telephone number, so I called Lisa the next morning. I attempted to write down notes as best as I could. She was very distraught. She gave me permission to post her account anonymously. I will state that she lives in the United States West Coast. So two months ago, Lisa gave birth to a baby boy. She never mentioned anything about the child's father, but I assumed by some of her comments that he was not in the relationship. Her pregnancy was uneventful, though the OBGYN insisted that she remain at home for the last trimester. The reason he gave was that Lisa was slightly built and it would be safer uh, better to be safe than sorry she lived with her mother and sister so there was someone usually there to watch over her so in those last months of her pregnancy the OBGYN told her he and a nurse would come to her mother's house for her exams instead of her coming to the office now she didn't give it much thought at the time but did recognize that this was a bit unusual The exams were not anything out of the ordinary except for one occasion when the nurse gave her an injection of a mild sedative to relax her during the cervical exam. I asked her what had happened during that exam, and she whispered, I don't know. Lisa had fallen asleep and was under strong sedation, but only remembers the nurse applying a cold compress to her forehead just before she got ready to leave. She said that she thinks the examination lasted almost a full hour from what she could tell or what she could recollect about the time of day. I asked if her mother and sister were home, but she said that both of them were at work that day. Got to excuse me, I got to get a drink. So in early November 2009, Lisa gave birth to a six pound, eight ounce baby boy at the local hospital. The labor and birth went easier than she had expected. Her contractions lasted about 10 hours, but she said it was more bearable than she had imagined it would be. This was her first child. The procedure was performed naturally without any pain medication, though she she though she said she did suffer a slight infection a few days after, which required her to remain in the hospital for two extra days. Her OBGYN performed the delivery and the nurse who had come to her home was also present. Everything was fine with the child and Lisa. She had taken the baby to another OBGYN because her regular doctor was on a long vacation. So another doctor in his clinic was taking care of his patients until he returned. A few days before the new year, Lisa was feeding her child when she noticed that the baby's eyes were dark, almost violet in color, instead of the normal blue hue. She said that the baby acted fine, but she called the doctor's office anyway. She was told the infant's eye color can change quickly, and it was nothing to worry about. It was just part of the growing process, and after a few days, the child's eyes seemed to lighten some. It was late morning on New Year's Eve, and Lisa wasn't home alone because her mother and sister were at a friend's wedding. She was in the living room when the baby started to suddenly scream like it was being hurt. Lisa picked him up and noticed that his eyes were very dark violet, but seemed to shine when the baby blinked. The baby continued to scream, but then stopped on a dime. The child's eyes opened wide, looked directly at her, and blinked sideways. Membranes came across both eyes from the corners and blinked like, in her words, a lizard. I asked Lisa to continue her story. She said she immediately called the doctor's office and was told to go to the hospital since the doctor was on call. When the baby was examined, it was determined that he was fine and that there was nothing wrong with his eyes. Then Lisa inquired to the emergency room doctor about her regular OBGYN She was told that someone would get back to her on that question. About a half hour later, the OBGYN who was on call and had filled in for her regular doctor came to the examination room. She looked at the exam reports and stated that everything was fine. Then Lisa was told in a matter of fact manner that her regular OBGYN had quit his practice. Lisa asked about his attending nurse. The doctor looked at her like she was crazy and said, what nurse? She described the nurse and was told that no one of that description worked at the clinic or the hospital. Now, since that day, Lisa says her child's eyes are a light violet color and that she has not noticed the strange side to side blinking at all, but swears there's something wrong. The child looked at her in a strange manner with very wide eyes and slowly closes his eyes and gives her an unsettling smile. She said she has investigated UBGYM. And had found that he was licensed to practice, but not anywhere to be, but not anywhere to be found. She told me there are a few words to describe how there are a few words to describe how I felt. In the meantime, I began to wonder if I was having my leg pulled. After some checking, Lisa is who she says she was, all the information I was given was true. Now I did ask her why she contacted me and was. I was told that I was referred to her and that I would give her some idea of where to go. I gave her some contact addresses and links as well as, as assurance that I would remain available if she needed to contact me. And my last question to Lisa was, what is going on? As I expected, she tells me her theory of reptilians and alien hybrids and that the OBGYN and nurse may be aliens, et cetera. I'm not discounting any of her thoughts, but as with every other incident case I've researched, I'm not taking all information as fact. Now, I truly believe Lisa is sincere, and I will continue to keep in touch with her. But in the meantime, I'll continue with an open and somewhat skeptical mind. So this is in the end. (laughs) So on Monday, January 2nd, 2012, I received the following email from Lisa. Lon, I hope you've had a very nice holiday. You had asked me to contact you if there was any notable information concerning my son and me. He's doing well and is very healthy. My mother has remarked that he is the healthiest baby she had ever seen because he doesn't catch colds or exhibit any other any minor ailments including fevers. In fact, his pediatrician has also remarked about how clean his medical record but has not mentioned It has a problem, but I am concerned because this just doesn't seem right to me. We moved into an apartment a few months ago. He goes to daycare on some days and stays with my mother on others. We have all noticed a strange characteristic that he has exhibited for the past year or so. Sometimes he will sit on the floor with his arms folded and stare straight ahead for up to 10 minutes. I've noticed that his eyes will turn a darker shade of violet during these episodes. He doesn't make any noise and almost impossible to arouse. Afterward, he acts like he's been zapped through his energy and will occasionally take a brief nap. Have you heard of this type of activity before? I made you aware of my thoughts on alien involvement during our first conversation. I honestly don't know what you think about that. Since then, I had thought less of that theory, but now I'm wondering if there's some type of intervention. I have still not been able to contact the OBGYN who suddenly left his practice. The AMA has no further record of him practicing anywhere. Now I'm starting to be wary of the pediatrician who I agree is somewhat paranoid. I bef- as before, if you or others you know could offer reassurance, I would be very grateful. So um, I contacted Lisa phone the next day, and she was at her office. And so we had made—we uh, may have been more discreet than than before. Her demeanor was quite uneasy. Uh, she was very concerned that something was seriously amiss in relation to her son's physical and mental well-being. She was also worried that some procedure may have been performed on her during the time that she was sedated while pregnant. She had a few odd physical changes that I was asked not to describe, at least for now. She had promised to keep me in the loop, though I felt like she needed to come forward in order to receive extensive medical treatment. Now, she continued to maintain that her family and I were the only parties with knowledge of her identification and situation. So, on January 15th, 2013, a year later, I received another email update from Lisa. Hello, Lon. I hope you're doing well. I've been receiving your email newsletter daily and enjoy. My situation has changed since I last wrote you. We we now live outside Los Angeles. My son is now three years old and attends preschool, though it has been difficult because he refuses to join activities and involve other children. He'd rather sit by himself and draw or read. His reading level has been tested at third grade level, and is very accomplished at drawing. He has the ability to draw almost perfect straight lines and circles. He has been seen by psychologists who said that he is antisocial, possibly a savant. I totally agree with, disagree with this assessment and have decided to have him tested at a local university. The testing includes a full physical evaluation, which has me a bit worried. I'm scared that something unusual will be discovered that may lead to a more intensive examination. I'm probably being paranoid, but I am concerned. As before, he occasionally sits on the floor with his arms folded and stares directly ahead for up to a half hour at a time. I've noticed that his eyes still turn a darker shade of violet, but it doesn't last for more than a few minutes. He doesn't make any noise and it's impossible to get his attention during these periods. Afterwards, he takes a brief nap. This only happens at home. The preschool staff has never mentioned this behavior. Now, if you get a chance, there are a few things I'd like to ask you by phone, not for public consumption. I don't mind you publishing this because I I want your readers to offer advice. I, I look forward to talking to you. So I called Lisa a day or two later. And we discussed a few other other odd incidents. I personally felt that Lisa's son may have been influenced by others, though I didn't want to get too deep into that subject with her um, until her son was examined. Unfortunately, I have not heard back from Lisa since January 2013. I made several attempts to contact her, including inquiries about her mother and her job. No one would offer me additional information, which was quite odd. Had the incident occurred or was I being played? I truly feel that this was a true set of incidents, but I can't imagine what happened to her and her son. So, you know, I haven't heard from her since, so I I don't know what to make of it. So was she playing me? Was she telling me the truth that she's trying to get attention? Who knows? But it is an odd account. Now, here's the last account for the night. So if you have questions, you can start putting them up in caps. I believe that the following account offers some insight as to what many experiencers are already aware of when it comes to higher intelligence and possible personal connection with alien beings. In the summer of 1965, I was living in the small town of Kermit, Texas. It was just my mother and I because my father died before I was born. At least that's what my mom said. I never did see any proof of his death or a gravesite. I was 10 years old that summer. So one evening, my friend and I were in her backyard lying on our backs and looking at the stars. We were talking small talk when all of a sudden I got the urge to look towards the western sky. It was like a voice told me to look for a bright star in the west. As I started to look, I saw a bright yellow light getting bigger and bigger. This light was headed towards the ground. I asked my friend if she saw this, but she didn't answer. I looked over and she was totally knocked out. I shook her, but she was not responding. I was worried about her, but then I heard a voice, a man's voice. I turned my head and there was a man standing about 20 foot away. He was tall, I'd say about six and a half feet tall. Once again, he said, are you Elsie? I looked at his face, and it seemed very familiar. The yellow light was stationary in the sky and had dimmed. The man looked at me and smiled. I responded, yes, I'm Elsie. Who are you? He answered, I believe you know who I am. Then the face began, became recognizable. He looked like the picture of my father that my mother had on her dresser. Are you my father? He shook his head in the affirmative and said, yes, Elsie, I am. I sat there on the grass staring at this man. How could this be my father? Where did he come from? He crouched down on his knees. That's when I noticed he was wearing a silver bodysuit and was barefoot. He looked at me and said, I have been watching you all your life. I thought it was about time that I introduced myself to you. I started to cry. I really did want to believe that this was my father. And I asked, didn't you die? He looked away for a second or two, then looked back at me. Elsie, I have a secret. I had to return home before you were born. I had no choice, but I assure you, I did not die. By this time, I was absolutely confused and upset. I managed to ask him, but can you stay here with us now? He looked up and said, no, I must leave soon, and I will see you again when I'm able. I love you, Elsie. I got to my feet and moved towards him. Wait, wait, where are you going? By that time, he had vanished, and the yellow light ascended at high speed into the stars. I looked into the sky, hoping the yellow light would reappear. I could hear my friend say, what's going on? I said nothing, turned, and walked home. I never told my mom what happened because I believe it would have upset her. She loved my father deeply and mentioned him often. But she still never told me what happened to him, even when I asked. So in July this year, and this was about seven or eight years ago, my mom passed away. I recently started going through her private papers and found an envelope with Elsie, please read, written on the front. There was a letter that was dated July 21st, 1965, which was the same day in which my mom passed away. The letter read, Sweet Elsie, I know your daddy came to visit you a few days ago. He told me he would. I love your daddy and miss him terribly, but he cannot live with us. All I can tell you is that he will come for you one day. On that day, we will all be together in a place I have been before. It is another world, another existence that people on earth would never understand. It's beautiful and wonderful. I don't know when you'll receive this letter, but if you have your own family by then, They will join us at their time of departure as well. Stay strong and hopeful. I love you with all my heart, Mom. My husband and I talked about the contents of the letter, and we discussed it with our adult children. We are convinced that our ancestors are extraterrestrial. I know this seems impossible, but I believe that you and others can understand why I feel this way. That is why I'm writing to you. My father has not returned to 51 years, but my family and I believe that we'll ascend to the stars when our day comes. Elsie. (laughs) Now, I had to read that email three times before I decided to contact her. And Elsie's actually not her real name. Uh, We talked on Skype for about two hours. In fact, I, I talked to most of the family as well, and they are all convinced that they are star people and will join their non-human race when uh, their bodies, their human bodies die. I asked if any of them had extra abilities. Elsie and her daughter said they have have very keen intuitions, which may become very useful on occasion. Elsie's husband confirmed this, saying that their abilities were a bit scary at times. I asked her husband if he believed he would join the family since he was not a descendant. He said that he can only hope, but believes he will, and Elsie asked that I post the email so others will feel as hopeful as she and her family. Now, this was one of the most unusual accounts I have ever received, but it was also probably one of the most uplifting, having the opportunity to talk to Elsie and her family. I, um, I gained some assurance that many of us on this planet will rejoin our cosmic families someday. Now, I believe that there are many incarnate extraterrestrials and angels on Earth. These star people had many characteristics like other humans, but express themselves in a way that distinguishes them from other individuals. This is a subject I would like to write about in detail one day. And uh, maybe I'll do that. I don't know. But that's that's the end of the that's the end of the account. So if you have questions, I'm going to go ahead and try to answer them. Oh, let's see here. I want to thank uh, Mortal Clown Wynn Nyes and Anita for uh, for the donations. Much appreciated. Okay, let's see what we got here. David Jones Locker. Will you go down and investigate David Eckhart's? Um, you know, now that my health or when my health is better and i I am doing much better you know i've lost a lot of weight i've you know i've gotten through the cancer surgery and i got i do have a surgery on monday but that's pretty insignificant but um yeah i would like to and uh i I plan on going down there one day Uh, that's all i can say because i i recently i haven't really thought about it but i probably will and Mortal Clown says she does not want me to go down see Tape. Uh she knows all about the case. Her and I her and I are pretty close and we uh, I talked to her about a lot of things. Uh George Penguin, how widespread do you think the abduction phenomena is in 2023? I think it's pretty widespread. Um You know, you you just heard some of the things I've read, and those are all accounts that I've got directly from people and, and, you know, cases I've been involved with. Of course, you know, David's case is probably the most intensive alien case or alien counter case I've ever worked on. And, um, but it it is widespread. I think it continues on. And, um, you know, it, it, it evolves. I mean, if you read my book, I've talked about how I believe the the abduction scenario encounters have evolved over the years. And um I I believe that's going to continue on. To what degree, I don't know. I wish I did, but I don't know. And Bernadette says I shouldn't go down there. Everybody's looking out for me. I, I I tell you, my wife Honestly, did not want me to go down there, Uh, and quite frankly, I never wrote about David's account until my wife passed away, and I I promised her I wouldn't write about it because she was afraid I was going to get some uh, uh, some um, repercussions from writing about what I did write about. So, um, though that hasn't happened for the most part, Amy Crew, who's the man in the picture behind Lon with the big hat? Thank you. Oh, that's not a hat. That's uh, that's actually Edgar Allan Poe with the raven behind his head. That Sam Sheeran's artwork. And you all go to and and you ought to search Sam Sheeran and uh, S-H-E-A-R-O-N and look at some of his artwork. It's fantastic stuff. any other questions <laughs> yeah awesome next book line you know what i've got a uh, i got enough for four books right now and i haven't really gotten started in any of them quite frank with him um Thomas Carroll, do you think some of these religious cults like Heaven's Gate may be guided by the ETs? Well, I, I think in the Heaven's Gate instance, I think no. I I don't buy into it. I didn't buy into any of that Heaven's Gate stuff. I, I, I think maybe some groups may have some <clears throat> insight. But I don't think it's to the extent that a lot of them believe they're, you know, what's going on. I mean, you know. I think a lot of them take it too seriously. Um, that's just my opinion. I know a lot of other people don't believe it, but I I, I don't think for the most part that that's true. Uh, Jose Sanchez, have you heard about the Dark Skies original E.T. movie idea? It wasn't the cutest pie version, cutie pie version that eventually became a blockbuster. I hadn't heard about it. <clears throat> Maybe you can write me and tell me about it. I hadn't heard about that. David Jones Locker, what do you think of the new Mexican aliens? <laughs> well, I, I did make a statement about it the other day. I, I, you know, with Jaime Massan being involved with that, I think a lot of it's crap. I mean, I think the man's a hoaxer. I, I don't buy into much of it. Uh, he's been caught doing these alien body stunts before, and um, I, I, I just cannot trust what he says anymore. Or what he gets involved with i i know it sounds a bit closed-minded but that's just the way i feel uh mortal clown do you think people have conflated ets and angels yeah i do uh i i think um i do think they're one and the same for the most part um i think angels are ets i don't think there's a religious aspect to them i think they are ets i think you know, I talk about guardian angels and angels contacting your angels. And you, you and I have talked about that. Um, and uh, I, I think they stay with you. I think if you need something from them, you demand it from them. They don't take exception to it. And I, I, I think it does help you. It has helped me. I truly believe that. I may get into that one point. I may, I may do an angel show and get deeper into that savage grammy do you agree that praying is that in the name of jesus protect us from abductions aliens i don't believe in that i really don't you know i'm not a very religious person you know i i you know i don't i don't dispute with people's people's faith if they believe in Jesus or another deity or religion that that's their prerogative. I I'm not one to, to really um, Question that so uh, if they believe it helps them then maybe it does but uh, For me, I just don't believe it does Well, we kind of went over an hour tonight so folks thanks for coming on t- and uh, I really appreciate it uh, you know, for watching and chatting. If you donate, it's um, it's truly appreciated. Your support is what makes this possible. Uh, please like and sh- subscribe and share. If you got suggestions for shows, uh, let me know. Lawnstrickerfansamateur.com. <clears throat> if you got a encounter or a report that you'd like to um, like to report, send it there as well. So until we meet again, and look, I. I don't know about next Friday night. I, like I said, I'm having surgery next week. I don't know what's going to be, what kind of condition I'm going to be by Friday night. I do have a guest lined up, but, you know, it's um, it may not pan out. So, But I'll give everybody plenty of notice. So, uh, again, until we meet again, stay healthy, safe, and uh, have a good night.